This sermon is brought to you by Buford Road Baptist Church. The speaker today is Pastor Tony Cahoot. We're talking about the seven sayings on the cross, and there's a couple of things that we've got to uh, mention today uh, so that we can get to the table of the Lord. Again, we're doing it a little different today, and so the modifications of what we uh, have done is, is working for all of our benefits as well. But in Luke chapter 23, if you look at your bulletin today, we're talking about the words of contentment. This is the seventh saying on the cross. And I want you to look with me in Luke chapter 23. And uh, I'm going to begin reading in verse number 44, right through verse number 46. And they will get these scriptures. You see them on the screen. They're in giant print for you. And I hope that maybe perhaps this would be a better uh, opportunity for you. Uh, so let's read, look at this as we go into the word this morning. In Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 44, and it was about the sixth hour and there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. And the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus or this, he gave up the ghost. Now, these are the words of contentment. Here we come to the final words of Jesus on the cross. He spoke seven times. Here we find his conclusion to these words. Although they were his final words on the cross, they certainly were not going to be his final words to mankind. Aren't you glad for that? I'm glad that he still speaks today. And there might be somebody watching or there might be somebody here this morning that would say, Pastor, well, I've never heard him speak. Well, then I would consider you to have a major problem in your life. If you've never heard God speak. Now, the word says this in John chapter 10, verse number 27. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. So we have a declaration in God's word that the sheep of his pasture do listen to him. They do hear him. You say, well, how does God speak today? First of all, he speaks through his word. This morning, you're looking at the word. This, you are holding the word in your lap. And here's how you have to remember this. The Bible says, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. God definitely speaks to us through his word. You know, when you get on your knees or sit in the pew, you're driving in your automobile and you pray to God. This is how we communicate with him. We talk to him through the avenue of prayer. But the way that he talks back to us is through his word. Every time you open the word, you're putting yourself in a position for God to speak. And when he does, we need to listen. God speaks to us through his word, through prayer. God speaks to us through the power of the Holy Spirit, through circumstances. God speaks to us through the wise counsel of other people. And so God, listen carefully, he's not going to speak to any of us today in an audible voice from a burning bush. That's not how he's going to do it today. 
but he has given us the means and the mechanisms to listen intently. But he's still very much speaking today. I'm sure that many hoped when Jesus was on the cross and when he spoke these words the last time and bowed his head and gave up the ghost, I'm sure that there were probably many people that hoped that this would be the last time they would ever hear anything come out of his mouth because they considered him to be such a, 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 a tumultuous type of a person they, that he was causing trouble and strife everywhere he went, that he was either causing a riot or he was uh, associating himself, as Brother David taught so well today, with Samaritan people. And he just was a troublemaker. And that's what they considered him to be, a blasphemer. This is one of the reasons why he's on the cross. And I'm sure that when he bowed his head and those people watching the crucifixion actually saw him inhale and exhale and bow his head and died, I'm sure that there were many people there who were saying, I'm glad this is done. I'm glad this is over with. But they were going to be in the shock of their life just a few days later. Now, I want you to think about that just for a minute. The silencing of Jesus, I believe, is something that was not only an obsession with people in his day, but the silencing of Jesus, if you have not realized it, you need to wake up because the silencing of Jesus is an obsession in the world today. There, there is a movement all across our land and, and filtering into other countries, but I'm, I'm appalled at what I see and what I hear on a daily basis, how there is a movement. There are people who are trying to silence the Lord Jesus. And I believe this to be true, that if they could remove Jesus from everything, if they could figure out a way which is not a far-fetched thought, but if they could figure out a way to confiscate every Bible because of what they consider to be hate speech, they would throw it in a barn fire. They would put a padlock on every church house. They would take every cross off of every steeple and they would do away with anything that remotely reminds the people of Jesus Christ. Don't think we don't live in that kind of a world. We certainly do. When Jesus bowed his head and gave up the ghost, I know that they were excited and thrilled. We have got him now. And certainly it was a bad testimony because when they looked around, I'm sure they were saying among themselves, where are his disciples? Thank God John came back. The last words of Jesus on the cross, they were words of peace. They were words of contentment. They were words of satisfaction. They were words of faith. They were words of encouragement. They were words of hope. In fact, they were words of the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. When Jesus spoke these words, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit, it was a fulfillment of Psalms 31. And I want you to see this. If they'll get it on the screen, I want to read this for you quickly in Psalms 31, verses 1 through 5. In thee, O Lord, do I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in thy righteousness. 
bow down thy ear to me. Deliver me speedily. Be thou my strong rock for a house of defense to save me. For thou art my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for thy name's sake, lead me and guide me. Pull me out of the net that they have privately laid. For me, for thou art my strength. Into thy hand, look at this. Into thy hand I commit my spirit. Thou hast redeemed me, O Lord, God of truth. And so when Jesus said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit, I hope you're learning something very important this morning. It was a Bible prophecy. Just like the scriptures that Isaiah wrote 750 years before Jesus was crucified. Now we have even a further picture in the Bible, a reference to go back to prophecy even before that. I want to real quickly here share with you four observations that I see in the seventh saying of the cross. And if you have your bulletin, I pray that you'll follow along with me. First of all, we see the Savior back in the fellowship with the Father. Because for three hours on the cross, communion had been broken between Jesus and the Father. And the reason for that is because Jesus was taking upon himself the sin of the world, the weight of the world. And because of that, God could not look upon his son. That's why Jesus, when he said, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus knew that there was a heartbreaking moment where God the Father had to turn his back, where he could not look upon sin. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 21, we know how Jesus was made sin for us. Here's something that I want you to understand. Jesus on the cross became our vicarious substitute. That means this. He took my place and he took your place. He that knew no sin, in fact, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so this is what happens, by the way, when we get into sin. Sin separates the fellowship between us and God. God doesn't kick you out of the family. You do not lose your relationship with him, but you can lose your fellowship. And that's what sin did for the Lord Jesus. It separated the fellowship with him and the Father. And that's exactly what it's going to do with you and me. If we don't confess our sins, and the word of God says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. So when we sin, there's a remedy to that. Thank God. There's a bomb in Gilead. I'm, I'm thankful today that there's a sympathizing Savior. Though your sins be as scarlet, Listen, they shall be white as snow. All of that is made possible through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's the thing. When we sin, we can confess our sin and we can get right back in fellowship with God. Secondly, the next thing that I want you to see this morning is a perfect yieldness to God. And that is this. Everything that God the Father had asked Jesus, God the Son, to do, everything, Jesus had done it. He had fulfilled every single aspect. Jesus took no shortcuts. He left nothing out. He did not lighten his load one iota. When God did not remove the bitter cup in Gethsemane, 
where Jesus prayed three times that he would do. Here's the thing. When God did not do that, Jesus was still obedient. Obedient to the death of the cross. When he had the opportunity, listen now. I don't know if you get this really and understand it, but I want you to see it with your own eyes this morning in the scripture. Turn quickly to John 18. And I want you to understand this. When Jesus was hanging on the cross and he began to speak these words, he was even mocked and he was tempted on one occasion. If you're really the son of God, come down from the cross and save yourself. You that say that you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. If you're the son of God, come down and save yourself. The truth of the matter is this. He could have called 10,000 angels. With the blink of his eye, he could have. But thank God he didn't. It wasn't God's plan. Jesus was obedient. But I want you to see how easy it would have been for Jesus to simply have walked away. In John chapter 18, I want you to look at this in verses 1 through 6. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Cedron, where was a garden into which he entered and his disciples. I, it reminds me, I've taken many of you to the Holy Land many, many times. I've actually preached a Sunday morning service in Gethsemane, one of the most beautiful places you were with me on one trip. It's just breathtaking. I hope that some of you would be able to go on our next trip. But look at this in verse 2. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place. For Jesus oft times restored thither with his disciples. Judas, then having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. Now, the, the thing that I want you to see is in verse 6 because I want you to understand how easy it would have been for Jesus to walk away from this whole thing in verse 6. As soon as then, as he had said unto them, I am he, look at this very carefully, they went backward and fell to the ground. Now, do you get this in your heart? Do you get it in your mind? Because here's what's happening. Judas has led these Roman centurions into Gethsemane. He's jingling the 30 pieces of silver. He's going to put the kiss of betrayal on the cheek of Jesus. He has a band of Roman centurions, and they're there to brutalize this moment, to hogtie Jesus, and, and to drag him back to the temple for his six illegal trials during the night. But here's what happened. When the crowd rushed Jesus and came upon him, and Jesus said, oh, who are you looking for? And they said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I'm he. I'm the guy you're looking for. And the Bible says when he said that, they all fell backwards. So Jesus could have easily said, pardon me. He could have stepped over each and every one of them, walked out of the garden. But he didn't do that. 
He was on a mission. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Number three, real quickly, we see the scope of eternal security. This is probably one of my best enjoyed moments of this particular episode on the cross. Jesus said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. The Father's hands, listen carefully this morning, they're secure hands. In fact, there's a passage of scripture in John 10, 28. I want you to see this. They'll get it on the screen for you. But let me say just a word about the Father's hands. Jesus said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And in John chapter 10, verse 28, the word says, and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Thank God for that. Never. When Jesus committed himself into the father's hands, he was just as safe as when you and I received Jesus as our savior. Jesus puts us in his hands. We're just as safe as Jesus was. In the Father's hands, eternal security is one of the greatest confidence of the believer. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse number 5, the Bible says, who are kept, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, number four, quickly. I see the believer's resting place. When Jesus said, Father, into thy hands, I commend my spirit. It sort of reminded me of two passages of scripture. John 14, 3. When I think of this, we see the believer's resting place. Jesus, after he gave those beautiful words, let not your heart be troubled. And he spoke those words down through verse number six. But I go back to verse number three. And this is what he says. He says, if I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there ye may be also. So I see a, a resting place for the believer. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse number 17, Paul said it this way, talking about the day of the rapture of the church. He said, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So here's the thing, because Jesus put himself in the safekeeping hands of the Father, when we become a born-again believer, that's exactly where the Holy Spirit puts us, in the safekeeping hands of the Father. And Jesus said, hey, if you're with me, you're going to be with me forever, that where I am there you may be also. And Paul said, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And so we see a wonderful resting place. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Jesus knew they were trustworthy. Well, we have enjoyed preaching the seven sayings on the cross. If you turn to the back of your bulletin, I want you to notice that we're going to go to an Old Testament passage of Scripture because today is Palm Sunday. And I want us to get the feeling of this, I want us to understand it. If you'll notice, our communion table is beautifully decorated with palm branches this morning. And I certainly want to thank those that were involved in setting these tables up for us. Even though we're doing this a little different this morning, this is the same.
I have had people to tell me all over America that they have never seen a communion service like Buford Road. We have a testimony. We have a testimony that is going across America because people in other states, they write me, they tell me, they tell me in person, I've never seen anything like that. I want you to look now on the back of your bulletin. I want to give you just a little bit of information here on Palm Sunday. Zechariah chapter 9 and verse number 9. I want you to see four things from Zechariah's prophecy about Palm Sunday. Just a few minutes ago, I gave you a prophetic word from Psalms 31 where Jesus would speak those words on the cross. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And now, this morning, I give you another word of prophecy from this great prophet, Zechariah, before Jesus was ever born. In Zechariah chapter 9, let's look there for a moment. In verse number 9, the prophet said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass, and upon the colt, or colt, the foal of an ass. Now, the main story of Palm Sunday is a fulfillment. What we're celebrating today, the triumphal entry of Jesus, this is a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Because here's the thing. Five centuries before the birth of Christ took place, Isaiah said he was wounded for our transgression 750 years before Jesus was ever born, went to the cross. But now five centuries before the cross, Zechariah prophesies this glorious event, the triumphal event of Jesus, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Now, here's something that I want to bring to your attention. Most of you know this, that there has always been and still is today an elevated expectation of the Jewish people that the Messiah will will come. Jewish people all over the world are looking for the Messiah to come. But they did not expect him to come in the way that Zechariah prophesied that he would. They didn't expect that at all. You know, when you think about these prophecies of Jesus and how it relates to his people, his chosen people, the Jewish people, it kind of puts you into the perspective of thinking, after so many things he said, after so many things he did, after all of the miracles, how can you deny it? The Roman soldier said, truly, This man is the son of God. How can it be denied? But millions upon millions on the earth do. They envision the Messiah coming in with blazing authority to destroy the Romans and to reestablish their lost nationality. But it was completely opposite of what they were thinking then, and it's completely opposite of what they're thinking now. In fact, you can talk to modern-day Jewish people in the streets of Jerusalem today and still give them the same message, and they will totally reject it. They cannot believe. They cannot get past. They cannot accept that Jesus, the Messiah, is going to come or has come in the manner and fashion that he did. It's completely opposite of what they imagined. 
Instead of a palace, he was born in a manger. Instead of being surrounded by servants, he came to serve. Instead of a crown of gold, he wore a crown of thorns. And so they could not then and they cannot now accept him to be the Messiah. And so the events right before the triumphal entry of Jesus, they were miraculous all in themselves. Jesus, here's the thing that you have to remember. Right before the triumphal entry took place, Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus had been in the ground four days, in the tomb, four days, right before this glorious event. And so this was the talk of the town. People were saying everywhere, in Judea and Galilee and Jerusalem, Capernaum, Nazareth, it was the talk of the town. This man, Jesus, do you know what people are saying about him? Lazarus was in the tomb four days and this man, Jesus, called him out. This man came out of the tomb wrapped in his grave clothes. It was the talk of the town. In the eyes of the people, Jesus was a hero. He was a totally an awesome individual, a man with great power, but... He certainly was not the Messiah. He could not possibly be the Messiah. Maybe this man, Jesus, is here to help deliver us out of the cruel hand of Roman persecution. And Jesus did have a lot of praise from these people. It was at this time Jesus said, all right, I'm going to show you that I'm going to come in and I am going to go to the cross voluntarily. No man will take my life. I will lay it down and give it to all freely. He was letting them know that he was not going to be the victim of the cross, but he was going to be the victor of the cross. As Jesus rode in, they waved their palm branches and they cried Hosanna. And then in the course of a week, they were crying crucify. I see four things in this prophecy, four things in this verse. I've given you a little place on your bulletin to write them down. The first thing I see is this in verse number nine, Zechariah 9, 9. Zechariah said, the king is coming. I'm happy to be able to tell you today as I stand here this morning in this pulpit in this sacred hour and I look out to you, my brothers and sisters, and I think about those who are watching by internet, many people I do not know. Here's the thing that I want you to understand. What Zechariah saw, what Zechariah said, I see and I tell you today, behold, the king is coming. He's coming in a twinkling of an eye. And so again, as John said, let not your heart be troubled. He is coming. He said he would. Zechariah said he would. I'm telling you today that he is. Secondly, I see in this passage of scripture, notice this, Zechariah said, he's just, he's a just man. And that's exactly what Jesus was. He was just, he was pure, he was holy. He was just in life, he was just in death, and I assure you that he will be just in judgment. Something else I see in this scripture here. Not only did Zechariah say that the king is coming, and not only did he say that he would be a just man, but he also said this, that he would bring salvation with him. Look at this. Behold, the king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation. 
So you think about John 3.16. You think about the manger in Bethlehem. You think about the plan of God. He said that Jesus was the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the earth. And Jesus would bring salvation with him. That's what Zechariah said. And that's what's found in the gospel of Luke. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And so he is the mighty deliverer of sin. And number four, he said that Jesus, the Messiah, would come in riding on a donkey. Look at this. Every, every aspect of the prophecy has been fulfilled. And riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. So somebody might say, why did Jesus do that? Why didn't he come riding into Jerusalem on a, on a beautiful white stallion? Jesus holding the reins and bringing that stallion back to where it's just standing on two feet, raising its front feet up. Why didn't Jesus come rushing in to Jerusalem with that? Well, let me say this. First of all, horses, especially in the day of Jesus, they were animals that were continually used for instruments of war. The donkey was known to be a more peaceable animal. And so the donkey was used as it is in many ways today, especially in the days of the Old West and going all the way back to the days of the Romans and the days of Jesus. Donkeys were used as pack mules, so to speak. All the equipment, all of the supplies were very perfectly tucked onto the the donkey and wrapped very tight. You see, the donkey was used to carry the heavy load. They were used to carry the heavy burdens. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing. He wasn't coming in to provide entertainment. He wasn't coming in to make a spectacle of himself. He wasn't coming in forcibly. He wasn't coming in as what their expectations were, a deliverer from the Roman brutality, but he was coming in willfully. He was coming in humbly. He was coming in lowly. And when he came in, that donkey that he was riding was symbolic of the fact of how he himself would be the one who would bear our burdens and take our heavy load. You listen to Pastor Tony Cahoot. For more information, visit our website at BufordRoadBaptistChurch.com.